this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. Okay, so what are the numbers on your company's dashboard? My guess is you look at your company's revenue and profitability, which are two great metrics to track, but there are another eight key drivers of the value of your company that go well beyond just revenue and profitability that are the things that acquirers want to know about. Going and getting your value builder score will help you look at your business through the lens of an acquirer. It takes about 15 minutes to do. Go to valuebuilder.com to get your score. Next up, you're going to hear from Jonathan Moody, who was one of three founders of a technology company called Versature, which is a phone system. And I'll let him describe the company to you. What I want you to listen to were the strategic reasons they got acquired. I counted two or three of them. Number one, they were a pure play, meaning they did one thing. They weren't just a sloppy spaghetti ball of a bunch of things. They did one thing. They were actually offering their acquire a geographic footprint into a market they didn't operate in. The acquire happened to be in the United States. They were operating in Canada, and that was a market they wanted to enter. And so it allowed them to have a kind of geographic foothold, which is another strategic reason that big companies buy small ones. The third one is a little less obvious, and it is how Jonathan and his colleagues were running the company on Salesforce.com. This is not intended as an advertisement for a CRM platform, but it is goes to show you that having all of your data at your fingertips and be able to demonstrate how you acquire customers, how you serve customers can be incredibly important to your acquisition conversation. To here to tell you the rest of the story is Jonathan Moody. Jonathan Moody, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. So tell me about this company, Versature. What did you guys do? What did you offer? So Versature offered and still does a hosted business phone service. And so we're replacing traditional phone service like a a Bell Canada, uh, but we're also replacing the piece of equipment that goes in the basement. And uh, we call it a hosted PBX. In most of the industry, the term clouds really snuck in there, but we were doing this a long time before the word cloud was really discussed. But they're really using the same model, taking that equipment out of your office, selling it on a seat model, right? So we're selling it based on the number of staff members you have. And in our case, we're actually even delivering a piece of equipment, uh, a physical phone on a desk as part of that monthly service. So it's kind of a you know, Spotify slowly catching up with us, if I was to think in the modern world. And how did you guys get into this business? I understand there was two other co-founders. Maybe talk about how the three of you came together. So about 12 years ago or so, it feels like forever now, we, uh, we, were, we came together working in an, an IT business. And so we were doing a we were managed service provider. We were offering a, an all-inclusive help desk seat. So if you had a business and you had 10 staff and you didn't want to have an IT person for a flat monthly fee for a staff member, we would offer to take care of all of your equipment in terms of um, you know, upgrades and updates. But we also offered staff who could answer questions. So your staff might call in and figure out to plug their mouse in or the printer's not working. And so they call in and get help from us. And what happened was these businesses started approaching us. Uh, and my partner, Paul, was the, the executive on that side of things. And uh, they'd come to him and say, we really love what you guys are doing with the computers. You're keeping us reliable. It's, you know, we understand the pricing model. Uh, it's a very sustainable business. 
can't you do our phones? And, you know, rolling back 15 years ago, the technology was totally different. The technicians were different technicians. The software interfaces were different. Everything was a different animal. And so we had to stay out of it. Uh, eventually what happened was the technology aligned. And so we moved over to the same network cable, for example, right? You actually plugged it into your internet connection for these voice over IP phones. And so in the early days, we got in and actually had a staff member move from uh, our Ottawa head office to Chicago. Uh, he got married and took his phone with him and actually led our support team out of Chicago, which, again, rewinding back 12, 13 years ago, was pretty unbelievable. You know, long distance was still expensive. And so... Yeah, you... You're losing me in the in the story, though. What, so the two of you guys, like, how did the three of you guys come together as a partner group? So Paul had a, a, a tech firm, and I came in to help with product management, or, or project management, excuse me, so to help out with his largest clients, take care of their details. And our CTO was doing some consulting for him, or what became our CTO. And uh, when we launched this this phone business, we actually built, he built a piece of equipment uh, running on Unix hardware, so computer hardware. And uh, I took care of the, the client side and Paul took on the sales side. Uh, but how did it come about that you guys were partners? Because Paul owned the IT services company. Like, why didn't he just start this product and you guys would stay on as, as employees? Like, why did he take the step to make you kind of shareholders in VersaShare? VersaShare. It's, a, it's probably a good question to ask him. I, I, my belief would be that it was really, he saw the, the value that you needed to drive a business and to get people bought in. And so to be partners, to have the vision and be able to put in that the hours uh, that were needed, and it, this was not a proven technology. Um, so, in, in a lot of ways, it was a, a, a forward-looking statement from him in the sense of this is what is going to be a big deal. This is not going to be easy, and I need these guys bought in and and, and part of it. And, uh, and we appreciate that. Yeah, and and did you do two jobs at once? Like, did you continue your job as a project manager for the IT company and kind of play around in the early days of VersaSure, or did you? Did you go all in on, on the phones uh, company? So we ran the two companies in parallel. And, and for the three of us initially, it was very much we did both roles. Uh, what worked well for that is that the, the client base was the same. So we were selling the phone services into the IT clients. And so it wasn't like we were doing outside lead gen and closing deals and other business initially. We were purely selling into the IT side of the client base. And I think it's worth noting we were a, a bootstrapped organization. We had a little bit of debt uh, in the early days. But really, we were bootstrapped and we were growing out of a, you know, another successful organization. How did you guys figure out the equity piece, like who would own what portion of the new company? Because in a lot of ways, it sounds like Paul, the owner of the IT, he had the customers, he had the office, but he, was, he seemed to be bankrolling a lot of it. Is that fair to say? Or, or am I missing? Did you guys kick in cash and sort of break out the equity that way? No, absolutely. Uh, he was uh, he was bankrolling for sure. Uh, we were significantly younger. Uh, Adam and I should say kill me for that one, but uh, we were a little bit younger than him, and uh, we're we're newer to the space. And so he definitely uh, bankrolled it. The Versature itself had an earlier life. If you do a little bit of googling uh, in the anti-spam space, uh, and then the, the whole dot com bust came up upon it and sort of got put away on the on the side, and uh, then got revived to go into this uh, voice over IP space. So. Uh, he already had the the core structure in place, and so that defined a lot of how we uh, we set up the business. 
Tell me how you guys uh, thought about fundraising. Uh, you you bootstrapped the business. There was this big kind of debt raise uh, in 2016. It looks like over a million dollars that you raised. Maybe talk a little bit about why you chose to use debt as opposed to equity, why you needed the money rather than continuing to bootstrap. What was the, the thinking there? So uh, being in this space, Know, a number of years ago, and, and that's a little bit different now in the, in the SaaS world, but not totally different, um, that we talked to banks. Uh, and we, the original uh, money, we, we do actually two rounds, I guess, in a way, with debt with BDC, was they looked at the business and really it was all about the owner, right? It wasn't, they didn't, couldn't value the business. We, we didn't own garbage trucks, right? We, we didn't own property. What did we have? We had a growing, quickly growing group of clients who were paying us reliable recurring revenue each month. But there was not a bank out there that was interested in having a conversation with that. To be honest, there wasn't a lot of VCs, um, you know, unless your scale was really big or you're in California, who were going to have a conversation with it back then. And so we had no choice, really. And it wasn't until the, the round you're referring to, uh, I don't know, it's not that many years ago, and that was really to, to double down the business and accelerate the growth, that RBC and a few of the banks looked at our books and said, wow, you guys got you know, a big recurring revenue source here. It's reliable. You've proven it works. You've got a negative churn rate. Uh, you obviously have happy customers and we're willing to, to put up money against it. And so that, but that's in the last four years, five years. What was the revenue ballpark at that point? We would have been in a uh, you know, uh, few, few hundred thousand dollars a month in, uh, in rec- just in the recurring portion, not including one times, things like that. Right, right. So, so not, a, not a little business. You're going to talk about $10,000. They think they can raise VC. And in my opinion, that's, that's that, you know, you're dreaming. Um, you got to be able to prove more than that and prove it's reliable. But everyone wants to talk about it because the valuations they're seeing in the SaaS companies look at the Shopify's of the world. Right. So it's interesting because, you know, we've heard that, that banks, traditional banks at least, don't really lend at a, at a competitive interest rate to to companies without sort of fixed or hard assets that you could you could liquidate in an auction. In this case, I'm assuming that the interest rate was sort of at a at a higher level because it, that you didn't have the the assets to back it up on. Like, what kind of interest rate do you, did you guys pay on that debt? So I don't have the number right in front of me, but I'll give you a quick story that'll I think will agree with you and, and, and counter it a little bit. So when we first went shopping before we closed that round that we did. Um, we actually reached out to BDC again because we had done business with them I know, seven years earlier and paid it off. BDC, of course, is the Business Development Bank of Canada. Exactly. And uh, so they came back to us with a number which felt too high for us. Uh, what was the interest rate they were offering? Say it was high teens is probably where it was. High teens, like 16, 17% kind of idea. Yeah, and I'm speaking, <laughs> having it in front of me. Um, but uh, it'd be in that, in that space, I'd imagine. And uh, so we actually looked at some private lenders who were interested um, around Canada and went down the road with them. By the time we kind of got through that process and decided it didn't really make sense with the one that wanted to do it, we actually got back in touch with BDC and that was a year later and all of the financials we'd put together, all the forecasting we had done, we were hitting everything. And so at that point, they went back to the drawing board, uh, knocked a little bit off it. And uh, I'm sure they wouldn't let me disclose what that is, but uh, they got more aggressive on their offer um, and we went ahead with it. The other part of that was RBC, and I believe most of the major banks at this point actually have 
um, staff that actually take care of this side of the business now. And so they actually had a specific product. We have a, we still have it to today, a credit line based on the uh, run through recurring revenue. So that should give you a, a ratio, I, I believe it's 3X, um, but you know, can move around uh, of your recurring revenue and they don't need any other hard asset to secure it. And so it's really targeted at these SaaS companies. Uh, and I'm sure there's a bunch of hoops you got to jump through. As always, when you need money, they don't usually have it for you. But uh, when you're in that situation where you have enough recurring revenue in a history, they'll, uh, they'll back you up now or more than. So how did that, that debt help you grow? Like how much did you guys grow between 2016 and 2018? Significantly. So we brought in a, a VP of sales, a VP of marketing. Uh, we really grew a sales team from one and a half, let's say up to uh, at that point. I think we probably hit six or seven on the sales side. Uh, and then, you know, from then we, we pushed it again, another another doubling, uh, tripling. So uh, we really went from a tech-oriented organization to a sales marketing-oriented organization. Um, after that debt round, we were about 50-50 sales and marketing, one side, of the, one side of the shop, the other side onboarding, support, and taking care of our customers. How many people did you have in the company when you sold it? How many full-time people? Uh, high 30s, 30, 35, 37. Got it. And what was the, the trigger that made you want to sell? The belief was always when the business was built that, you know, at some point there was going to be uh, uh, some type of a transaction. Um, we didn't know which end of it we'd be on. Uh, we didn't know sort of what the, the, you know, the final picture would look like for us taking care of our staff, uh, taking care of our customers or two, you know, really high valued things that we wanted to do. And how does, sorry, how does taking care of your staff relate to being acquired? What's the, what's the thinking there? Were they all shareholders or option holders? Or There was some of those, but really you know, it's more about having, we, we, we value culture highly here. We, we want people to want to be here. We have a good time at work. And so the idea that we would, uh, you know, do, unfortunately do what happens sometimes in this space, which is you sell off to a, a US or an international person who just wants to buy the, or even Canadian, wants to buy the clients, right? So they take the clients, close down the office, move it to Toronto or Utah or California. And uh, really, they're buying the recurring revenue. So we, we were not excited to go down that road. And uh, that was one of the requirements as we grew. At the same time, I think everyone would tell you that you know, as a group of founders and as the valuations start to go up, it becomes a bit of a challenge to, to sit on that kind of a bank and, and uh, you know, have a fair amount of risk uh, that you're sitting on. So in your sense, you felt that you were, you were kind of risk on, you were, you were risking a lot of wealth if you will, every, you know, as you continue to kind of grow the business, that this shareholding that you accumulated was worth a, a considerable amount of money. Well, especially if you want to continue to uh, push, right? I mean, it's, it's one thing if you want to sit back and sort of milk it per se, but it's another thing if you want to continue to push the growth curve. I mean, we've been a top 10 fast growing company a number of times in the last few years. We were, you know, hiring and, and, and running this thing to grow. And so these are, you know, challenging conversations. Uh, Paul, who uh, again was the the founder, really the founding, uh, uh, the core founder, I guess. He uh, as well had some other ideas on what he was looking to get into, and uh, you know, wasn't involved the last couple of years in day to day management. And so uh, it was also a chance for him to to look at other opportunities. So what was again? Was there a sort sort of a trigger event? Oftentimes these things are triggered by an inbound inquiry. Um, did, did you receive some, some sort of inbound interest that made you guys look up and say, well, maybe we should take advantage of this or, or was like, what was the trigger that the kind of straw that broke the, the camel's back, so to speak? And it wasn't necessarily a, a specific trigger. 
uh, you know, any business like this, as you grow it, and I like to think if you do it properly, you've always got bodies that are interested, and you're always you've always got uh, individuals trying to figure out uh, how to, to be honest, take advantage of you, um, but also to, to to start conversations, right? What what is the plan? What what are you looking to do? Uh, whether that's to add to adjacent space, look at other products, and so we had had, I'd say, conversations regularly, which I would encourage everyone to do. It's very healthy to understand the valuations, to understand how other people out in the space are looking at the, you know, looking at your business, so you can shape the, the stats, the growth curves, the financials, to make it make sense for those that might be interested at some point. Um, and so we just kept having those conversations, kept having those conversations, and uh, eventually uh, found some that made sense. And so where does it go from there? Tell me the story. So uh, I'm trying to think the numbers. We probably chatted with, with five to 10 uh, different groups you know, fairly seriously once we decided that we thought there was an option. And then you're trying to find out what the market looks like competitively. Uh, we went through kind of two processes, I guess. Uh, originally went down the road with one that, that just didn't quite make sense in the end. And I think you, if you're smart, you got to make sure you always have an exit, right? That uh, and this, not, not that kind of an exit, a non-exit, I guess, to get out of the conversation to continue business. And we were very lucky that way. We had a reliable business that was was generating cash. Didn't need, uh, you know, we didn't we didn't need to raise money, and so we could walk out of uh, any negotiation and decide that it just wasn't the right time or the right people. And uh, what was it that gave you cold feet about that uh, about that um, process, if you will, that 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 potential acquire? Yeah, I mean, there was lots of different little things that go on, right? I mean, in terms of, of, of what they're looking to do with the organization. Uh, in that particular case, it, it, a lot of it came down to price, uh, for better or for worse. And the dollars just didn't always make sense. And, and uh, so that, that was probably the, the, can, the straw that brought the camel's back, per se. But, uh, you know, lots of little details that, that weren't quite coming together and uh, having been through the process a couple of times in my life uh, from a distance, I would suggest that Sometimes the more you talk, the the little the little details you start to understand what's uh, what's what's being thought about more than you did when you you first had a conversation with them. Let's just like dating. Yeah, and and I you know I'd like to know more specifics so that I can understand what what went wrong. So you, the problem the the valuation that you were getting you you weren't happy with. Like what what sort of range were you getting in those? in those conversations sound, sound like you, you spoke with kind of five to 10 different people. Did they give you a sense of what they thought it was worth? So, uh, in, in this business, most are looking to, to work in a multiple of revenues, uh, when you're at the growth curve that we're at in the, in, in the space. And so, uh, most of the conversations started around, uh, one times and sort of moved upstream from there, depending on, uh, you know, everything from how they were, were structuring the deal. We spoke to some firms that were, uh, eventually going to, you know, IPO. And so they're looking to, to do shares, right? And uh, obviously we're more excited to pay a bigger multiple because in our space, the, the public multiples are very nice. Uh, companies that we're looking to, you know, pay cash, we're, we're looking to do it for a different way. So uh, it did really vary, but generally it was a multiple of revenue starting around round one and, you know, working its way to three and uh, you know, some, some discussions at four, although I think those are uh, probably mostly advertising. Got it. Got it. So... <sighs> How did you go? Did did it get to a letter of intent from from more than one firm, or were there multiple kind of letters of intent that you were evaluating, like real like kind of firm offers that were on the table? Yeah, mul multiple letters of offer. Uh, I mean, it, without getting into to, to too much of the mechanics of it, the, I mean, that's usually the game, right? Is to uh, to get some uh, some different bids going on from different parties and then uh, play them off each other. So for, for sure, that's that's where we ended up and. 
to be honest, we didn't talk to anyone that weren't that I mean, we did talk to people weren't serious, but at the when we got to that level, they're all very serious, uh, you know, have good intentions and they're all business, you know, owners that that we were uh we would have been interested in working with. And how did you evaluate the the various offers that you received? Like what what were the pros and cons to each? I think it came back a lot of it again to, to staff and clients. So there were the businesses that were going to take care of these customers that we've been adding over the last 12 years. Were they going to run, grow the office, invest in the business here in Canada? And then uh, I'd say number three really was the, the valuation. Got it. And so what was, what were the types of offers from the standpoint of structuring? You mentioned in some cases they wanted to do shares, other cases it was cash. Like did most of them have some sort of, uh, structuring where part of the 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 payment would be in the future for you know an earnout purposes or were they mostly kind of paid totally up front like how did they kind of structure their their offers it, it really varied based on where they were coming from so depending on what their space was was used to we did see uh, a little bit of that but we honestly had some upfront uh, all cash uh, you know right off into the sunset which as i've said really wasn't the plan here we wanted to take care of the customers and the staff um they was some that were, uh, you know, the exact opposite of that, right? Entirely, basically entirely stock and, uh, you know, roped on to future value of what you can do with it, which obviously have some upside. So it was, that was something that uh, as co-founders, we, we had to circle the wagons and, and discuss. But as I said, we've been working on this since the start uh, together. And so I had a pretty good idea, uh, you know, what we thought would be acceptable and uh, how we wanted to take care of both the customers and the, and the staff. What did you guys think would be acceptable? Those were the two pieces, like realistically, the the valuation, as I said before, was number three for us. Um, obviously, we you know we, we wanted to get a fair price for what we felt we had built, but at the same time, the the real important piece, we we were not going to sell this thing to someone that was going to to shut it down and move the clients away. Um, we weren't going to sell it to somebody that wasn't going to invest in Canada and continue to push uh, you know, push the, the boundaries here. I'm curious to, about that because, you know, you know, you guys admittedly started the business to kind of sell it. Like it was something you talked about a lot. It was, it was a commercial venture. And so I'd be curious to know why you cared so much about what was going to happen in the future. Like it, like I hear that a lot from people who have family businesses and it's like third generation and they've run it for 46 years. And like, like I get it in that situation, but you guys were, you know, you, you saw an opportunity in the marketplace, three young founders, like why, you know, like why don't you just sell to the highest bidder? I think there'd be a simple answer. It should be that, uh, it wouldn't be the right thing to do. That wasn't, uh, wasn't how we'd operated the business is probably the reality. And we really were a client first organization. We're a premium product. Um, we, we'd gone around saying that and believing it for, for 14 years, 12 years. And uh, so we were going to stand behind that all the way through the whole process. And I think the other side of it is, is what I said earlier, which is that you know, we weren't in a situation where it had to go. And so, uh, as I said, we kind of went through a, a first process and, and didn't go with it. Um, nothing was forcing our hand. We could keep it going the way it was going. We keep growing it and pushing it. Uh, if we needed to, if that didn't make sense and it wasn't the right transaction. So I, I think we, you know, if, if we were in a different situation where we needed cash or we were unable to sustain the business, we, we might've made different decisions, but we, we luckily were not in that position. That's helpful for sure. Would it be going back to the multiple offers that you receive, would it be fair to say that the ones that were sort of 
as you described, sort of all cash right off of the sunset. Was it fair to say those were on the lower end of the multiple and the ones that had some structuring, you know, future payments, take some shares in our company, et cetera, were on the higher end of the multiple? I mean, that would be my assumption, but I just wanted to validate that with you. I think that would be common sense, but uh, it wasn't quite that clear. Uh, Okay. It wasn't necessarily that way. The uh, you, got, you got to put some other pieces in play, like currency. Right, so we ended up working with a, a U.S.-based firm. So that obviously, especially where the dollar is right now, puts a pretty big twist on it. Um, but you get into some other, as I said, some public market valuations um, for existing players in our space. Uh, how they look at the the valuation of these organizations is very different than how we look at them, uh, or as a as a private firm, or as a, a bank, or a, a you know, uh, anyone else, they're going to value it very differently than those public firms do. So we, we really did see a, a full gamut. Yeah, I'd, I'd be curious to know how currency impacted your uh, your deal. So most of our listeners in the United States, uh, you're in Canada right now as we record this, the Canadian dollar is trading at about 75 cents for every one US dollar. And so how did currency, how did that you know difference in the currency, obviously your acquirer was a US based acquirer. Um, how did that impact, you know, the the deal um as as it uh, as it played out well as i looked at it it was uh provided great value for them right because the if you look at the history of the currency obviously and i'm not going to pretend that i can play that game because i'd be not i'd be sitting on a beach somewhere but um you know it, odds are it wasn't going to stay where it was i think yeah we were down exactly you know 30 percent discount basically and so if you look at it that way and you're buying a firm with recurring revenue down the road there is a currency play involved, um, which has some theoretical upside for them. Um, did they look at that? They, they knew what it was worth. Uh, I would argue that few of them discounted the revenue the same way, although I, of course they did on their spreadsheets, but in the conversations that wasn't so much the case. Um, so it was kind of, a, I guess, a little bit of a, a, a quiet discussion around currency, but was, you know, wasn't like it was a 4% difference. It was a pretty significant um, cost structure difference when you talk to a Canadian firm who had to figure out uh, how to make that make sense. Yeah. Because of course, the the acquirer, while they would have a more powerful US dollar to buy a Canadian asset, the profits that you guys would make would, would also be discounted as they came into the United States, obviously. Uh, so they So it kind of works both ways, unless they thought that they had fairly good visibility into the idea that that over time the Canadian dollar would somehow appreciate so they could buy it with you know powerful US dollars today but tomorrow the Canadian dollar may go to parity and and those profits would come across the US in the same with the same strength I, I, did they allude to any sense that, that that was part of their strategy that this kind of currency playing the currency market at all it doesn't sound like that was a major part of it no i, I think to, to you and I, that makes a lot of sense. And I, th- I do think in some of these conversations that was going on at the other end. Uh, but I think in our case, because of because of the high growth rate that we were looking at, because of our access to the Canadian market, um, that was just kind of a, a side story. I'd say it was more of a struggle for the Canadian, the fellow Canadian companies looking to try and get a valuation figured out, right? Rather than the, the American companies looking at it as an advantage. Talk about, if you wouldn't mind, the... The importance of being a pure play, meaning kind of do one thing better than anybody else in in your space, because you guys made some proactive, thoughtful decisions around not diversifying your product suite. Maybe talk a little bit about that if you would mind. 
Yeah, so, so we'd always been a, a pure place. So we, we only sold business phone service. And it sounds kind of lame when I say it that way, but the idea was, was we were really focused. Our sales team, we do demos, we were building product. We were working with organizations to create ecosystems around it, but we weren't confusing it with, let's say the internet service provider business, which, which I think is a mistake generally in our space that a lot of businesses get into. It becomes an easy one. You just resell it. It's why not, you know, stick it alongside. The margins are much lower. You don't have control over it, so you can't ensure the quality. And so it became a, for a lot of business, a distraction. For us, when we got into the, uh, you know, into those deep discussions, all of a sudden, all the spreadsheets were simpler, right? All the results were simpler. What, what did it look like? How are you guys being successful? What was working? Who was buying it? We didn't have 14 different products to have those discussions on. We had one and there was no debate that it had been working, that it was successful, that we had happy clients. And so it became a really clean you know, knife edge of a story to look at and understand. And either people were interested in what we were doing or they weren't. Talk, if you could, about what net to phone your acquire, the subsidiary of IDT, what they saw in your company. Like what, what was the strategic reason they were buying Versature? So, so net to phone is uh, taking a, a global approach to our business. And so they have a existing uh, client base in, in the U.S., already. They have offices in Brazil, in, in uh, Mexico. Um, they are Argentina. They're really looking uh, at our space. And there's a few gorillas in the space that are public that are very, serve out of one, uh, one facility without naming specific places. And so they'll service the world out of the Southern US. And the net to phone view on the world, and, and I happen to agree with it, is that we need boots on the street locally. That means we support with Canadian when you call in and need help. It means we onboard you and get you set up with Canadians. Um, it means that we're selling and can go visit you uh, in Canada with Canadians. So their view is global that way. The same thing in Brazil, the same thing in Mexico, the same thing in the US. And so Canada for them was they were going to build it or they were going to buy it. And uh, we aligned with with their, their view on quality and uh, our approach. Obviously, we align in terms of being a pure play because they're not in a whole bunch of space. The, the Net-to-Phone product is very similar to the Versature product. Uh, and they were going to the same place as us. Uh, they, you know, they were fast growing and, and trying to dominate the, the market. So it, it, it aligned right into the, to their business plan. And that's what made the conversations uh, so nice. The software that you guys were, were selling, was that something you owned or something you essentially resold on behalf of somebody else? So, so we're really a, a service provider. So we run a platform, uh, we run it in facilities, um, but we're really a, a service business. So no, we don't, uh, the intellectual property of the, the product itself uh, is not owned by us. We have some, some, I like to call them glue, but some pieces that do things like uh, when we take call recordings out of the system, we're now doing transcription of them and keyword analysis, for example. So we, we build some some pieces there that add value, but the, the core platform itself, if I, if I can describe it that way, is not something that we own. So um, they have their own that they're using and, and we have our own. We're going to come together at some point, but uh, for now, it's, uh, it's, it's not something we own. Got it. That's helpful. So your value to, to, to Net2Phone was that you had... Uh, a footprint in the Canadian marketplace. You had customers in the Canadian marketplace, and you you knew the marketplace. It, it wasn't necessarily uh, some technology they was they were trying to acquire. It was really your sort of beachhead in Canada. Uh, Is that right? Exactly the beachhead, the the revenue, right? So we had an existing business that that paid the bills, uh, and of course we also had a um, uh, I'm going to say a a record of. Uh, 
of pursuing growth, right, and being successful in Canada. So they could, uh, you know, learn from that and use that. And to be honest, they've actually taken a lot of our uh, our approaches and, and technologies, and they're, they're rolling them into the U.S. Uh, into their team to, uh, and we're doing the same the other way, obviously. But uh, to really learn from our direct sell approach and, and how we do it, we we think very much like a like a SaaS, like a modern SaaS company, if I can say that for those with a SaaS space, as opposed to a traditional phone company. And maybe talk a little bit about how you ran or you run the company, uh, because I understand that that Salesforce, the 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 CRM platform, is kind of the 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 plumbing or the backbone for your business. Maybe talk a little bit about how that played out with Net2Phone. So, I mean, with Netophone, but but in general, uh, you're absolutely right. So we've been a, a Salesforce shop from end to end for about seven years now. Uh, we do everything in Salesforce, and uh, for us, it was a it was a necessity. We we didn't want to have to innovate and build back office tools. A lot of companies get tied up in that. We had a few developers. We wanted them working on things we could sell, and so what we ended up doing was working towards Salesforce and slowly adding an entire ecosystem connections. We do billing and invoicing. Uh, we do uh, comp payments all through Salesforce. What that meant when we got into this process was, and it didn't matter who we were, were speaking with, I could pull out a laptop and slice and dice our data in a million different ways as they needed to try and get their head wrapped around it without resorting to the classic, you know, 42 tabs in Excel and some filters and a pivot where no one really trusts what's going on. So it's all there. It's all in Salesforce, almost, almost a trusted third party. Um, that's holding that data, pull it up, break it down, split it, look at the data in a different way. And uh, that became amazingly useful in, in, in tons of those conversations uh, as they tried to understand you know, where our clients were, maybe geographically, or what the average revenue spend was, or uh, I mean, what AR looked like. All these things were, were available at our, our fingertips, even when we were meeting offsite in the boardroom uh, with them. Fascinating. And so being able to kind of talk Apples to apples, because I'm assuming most of the acquirers also use Salesforce as their back end. Well, it was a real mix. And, and actually, some of the best conversations, to be honest, people that had none of these things. Oh, really? Looked at each other and went, how did they just do that? <laughs> did, they, did they really just, you know, slice and dice their client base based on what we just asked them 45 seconds ago? Uh, we asked them to, you know, build some cohorts and tell us what the valuation of those cohorts was. We could pull all that stuff up on the fly for them, including marketing. So a lot of our conversations came into lead gen, which again is all in Salesforce. So what does that funnel look like? Where are we getting our leads from? Those are questions that people would ask and, and really trying to get their head wrapped around because when you're pushing those valuation numbers higher, it, they, those are the, the, the soft things that people can actually put value on. And so depending who the conversation was, they were different things. But again, it wasn't someone just making up stories and drawing pictures on a whiteboard. This was data that we could pull up in front of us and, and, and show what it had been how it, how it was working and and project in a lot of cases what that looked like in the future. Fascinating. I'd be curious, Jonathan, how you personally have been impacted by the sale of the company. I'm assuming this is a a fairly significant financial event for you personally. Maybe just talk about what impact it's had on your your you know kind of personal outlook and and personal life. I mean, for, for all the founders, for us, you know, we'd, we'd been bootstrapped organization. So, uh, you know, paid ourselves below market for a, a number of years. And so absolutely, it was a, a chance to, I'd say, catch up on uh, you know, what we've been behind on. Uh, I can tell you that I was not the top paid person in the organization. And uh, in some of those conversations, when I looked at the salaries, there was uh, people who looked at me and said, well, what do you, what, what's the president, the COO is, is 
not at the top of the, the salary chart, what's, what's going on. And that wasn't how we operated. We were looking to grow business and, and be successful. And so, uh, absolutely personally, that was a, a chance on that for me. I believe the bigger opportunity is actually now. And so we've hired a 15 staff or thereabouts since we closed in, uh, in September. We uh, are looking like we're going to do that probably again. We're on track to double our rate of growth. And, and for me, this is a, a, a chance to really light it up and, and show what we can do when we uh, sort of dial up the, the marketing and the, the approach. So you got topped up. Did you buy yourself a trophy? <laughs> My trophy is this, uh, this nice desk I'm sitting in, I guess. No, it's... Uh, for me, I, I love to see the success. So it's it's been a long time coming where, you know, we 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 have all new desks in the office this week. So I love seeing the staff happy with, uh, you know, new office furniture. Um, but that's the kind of stuff that, that really does it for me to, to show that, uh, you know, the hard work of all of the team is being rewarded. Isn't that interesting that it's the, it's some of the, not intangibles, but the very tangible things such as desks that, that are emblematic of, of having a new acquirer. Uh, Jonathan, it's been, uh, it's been great to chat with you. Where can people find out about, uh, about you? Maybe they want to check out Versature. What's the best uh, place for them to do that? Yeah, for sure. So it's versature.com as uh, our website. You're welcome to find me on, on LinkedIn as well. My last name hasn't, or my first name has an O at the end is usually the biggest trick for people tracking me down. Jonathan Moody. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at facebook.com slash built to sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.